Well, I appreciate being led by the musicians and music and singing. Glad to sing with you. My name is Pastor Mark Hayes, and it's now my privilege and delight to lead you in God's Word. Pastor Jonathan already read for us Mark chapter 10. It was the reading that we engaged in this past week. It's the text for this morning's sermon, so I'd ask you to take your Bibles back out and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. That'll be the text for today. As you find your place there, let me take just a moment and commit ourselves once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, once again we come before you, we make our request of you. We pray now that as we once again read your word, interact with your word, that you would guide and direct our thoughts. May your spirit who authored the text be our teacher, counselor, convictor, guide, instructor. Uh, We need your help this morning. We ask you for it. Uh, We understand and know that you can do above and beyond what we might think or imagine. And so just as we come with the word open, we pray that you would uh, lead us and guide us and direct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've had to turn uh, once again to Mark chapter 10, but in the opening paragraph of the Apostle Peter's first letter to scattered and persecuted Christians, Peter says in the opening paragraph, though you have not seen him, referring to Jesus, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you don't not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, You and I, we have not seen Jesus. And we don't see him now. We've heard of him. And with eyes of faith, we see him as he's revealed to us in the scripture and through the testimony of his followers. And those of us who have heard about Jesus and believed on him, those whom God has caused to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, well, we, we love Jesus and we believe him for he is our salvation. He's our great reward, our greatest treasure. Uh, the context of Peter's statement of not seeing Jesus but loving him, of not seeing him now but believing him, the context is God's mercy resulting in our eternal inheritance, our present protection as God guards us with his power, and also our present grief as we go through various trials which test our faith, all of which God presides over. According to his mercy, God has caused us to be born again. God has brought us into an eternal inheritance. God guards us with his power, and God permits and provides various trials that present us grief to test and purify our faith. And the Apostle Paul was writing to persecuted and dispersed Christians who were living under the cruel dictatorship, the cruel emperorship of Nero. Their trials were intense and severe, and so might ours be intense and severe and unplanned and unexpected. Uh, You and I, as Peter says, you and I, we have not seen Jesus, and we don't see him now. We've heard of him, and we love him, and we believe him, and we see him with eyes of faith. But as we read through the Gospels, And particularly as we read this last week through Mark chapter 10, we do understand that there were people who did see Jesus. Uh, They saw him, they experienced him, they had meals with him, they interacted with him, they had conversations with him, they handled him. As the Apostle John said in his uh, uh, letter, 1 John, he said, we we heard him, we saw him, we, we handled him, we've touched him. This is the Jesus that we proclaim to you. In Mark chapter 10, we read about some people who had encounters and conversations with Jesus. And in these encounters, which we read in Mark chapter 10, we discover that Jesus was asked two questions 
And Jesus asked one question two times over. Did you see that in the text? Did you hear that this morning as Jonathan read it? The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The rich young man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Those are the two questions that Jesus was asked. And then later in the chapter, Jesus asked one question two times. He asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And he asked Bartimaeus the exact same question. What do we want? What do you want me to do for you? And so we have two questions asked of Jesus, and Jesus asked one question two times. If you and I had the privilege of a personal face-to-face encounter with Jesus, what would you ask him? You have some questions for Jesus? And if you were to have a meal with him and have an opportunity to encounter him, he, he comes walking through your town, and you see him, and you get to him, and you have an opportunity to ask Jesus a question, what question would you ask Jesus? And then if Jesus were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? You have some requests you might make? I'm familiar with some of your requests and I'm praying those with you. Uh, we certainly have requests that we would make of Jesus. Well, with this in mind, let's, let's look at these encounters from the text and let's learn from them. In Mark chapter 10, in the opening paragraph, we see the Pharisees ask Jesus the first question. They ask him whether it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. We see that in verse 2. If we had an opportunity to talk with Jesus, this probably isn't the question we would ask. You know, Jesus, this has really been out of my heart and mind. My life just isn't secure without this. Do you have a position on divorce? Do you, do you have a position on divorce and remarriage, Jesus? This probably isn't the question we would ask, right? Is w- w- any of you, that's your, pri- that's your priority question? All right, thank you. One honest person in the crowd. We discover here that the Pharisees ask the question not because they have any interest in hearing Jesus' position on divorce. They don't want to learn from him. They don't want to be educated from him on this. They already have an answer, and they're not about to change their mind. We discover they ask the question to test him. This is a test question. This is a trick question. They simply want to trip Jesus up and they want to trap him and get him into trouble. And this question is almost certain to do the fact, the trick. Because there's almost no way that Jesus could answer this question and not get in trouble. You see, if Jesus says it's wrong to divorce, then maybe they can get him in trouble with Herod. Because John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, said it was wrong to divorce. And that got John thrown in prison and beheaded. And they'd like nothing better than to have Jesus thrown into prison and beheaded by Herod. So if Jesus says it's wrong to divorce, then maybe he can get in the same trouble John the Baptist got in trouble. If Jesus says divorce isn't permissible, then he would be in disagreement with Moses and what Moses wrote in the law because Moses permitted certificates of divorce and that would get Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders and the people of his day for contradicting Moses. But if Jesus says it is permissible, you can get divorced, then that would cause huge schisms within the religious groups. There are various religious groups in that day. You have the the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Essenes, and they all take different positions on divorce. And if Jesus lands somewhere, then it's going to cause division. He's going to land in some tribe, and it's just going to cause division. So there's almost no answer Jesus could give to their question. This is a trap question. 
It's a test question. And it's such a silly question, I almost didn't cover it this morning. Because none of us, that would be the burning question that we would have for Jesus. If we have an opportunity to talk with him, we're not gonna be like, well, Jesus, do you have a position on divorce and remarriage? Because I really need to know. But Jesus' response to their test question is so brilliant, we've got to cover it. Plus, it's in the biblical text, and that's what we do. So the Pharisees ask in verse, what, two? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus replies by asking them, well, what does Moses say? This is, this is fascinating. Jesus turns the question around, and he asks them a question, and he's going to have them answer their own question by citing their own authority. The Pharisees answer, well, Moses allowed. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. Divorce was permitted under the law. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Moses doesn't command divorce, but he presupposes that divorce is going to happen because he presupposes that sin is going to happen. And so he permits the writing of divorce certificates, and in the law, he prescribes parameters on both divorce and remarriage. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, well, what, what does Moses say? And they respond, well, Moses permitted divorce. To which Jesus responds to their answer by going back further into the biblical text, going back to Genesis 1 and 2 to God's original intent for marriage. Jesus says, yes, Moses permitted divorce because of your hard and sinful hearts. Uh, divorce wasn't commanded, it was a concession. Sin makes people treat one another poorly, and divorces are going to happen. That stinks, but it's true. Divorces are going to happen. Moses doesn't command that you divorce one another, but he concedes that divorces are going to happen because sin happens, and sin makes people treat one another poorly. Sin makes people treat one another with, you know, unfaithfulness, cruelty, meanness, disloyalty, selfishness. So Moses permits divorce, but Jesus says, but God's original intention for marriage is lifelong permanency. That was God's original intent. God made people in his image. He made them male and female. He gendered them. He put them together as husband and wife. God's intention for marriage was to be between a man and a woman who leave their parents, cleave to one another, and become one in marriage. Jesus says that marriage just isn't a decision that people make, a decision they can make and a decision they can break. Marriage is something that God does. God joins people in marriage, and what God joins, people should not separate. So that's his answer. The disciples ask for further clarification, and Jesus gives them an answer, and he equates divorce with adultery. But also in his answer, we see that Jesus reveals there's no preference given in the marriage to either gender. The man shouldn't divorce his wife, and the wife should not divorce her husband. They should be co-heirs together in the grace of life. They should be unified in the covenant of marriage. God made them male and female in his image. They are equal in value and dignity and honor. And for the husband and wife, God's intention for them is lifelong marriage permanency. So we learn from this. Divorce happens. Divorce happens because sin happens. Divorce is the difficult consequence of unrepented sin. God's design from the very beginning is something far better, a relationship that reflects the relationship that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church, that we read about in the book of Ephesians. So that's question number one. Any of you get any education on that? The Pharisees ask a question, 
because they just want to test him. They want to trap him. They don't want to learn anything about that. They just want to somehow get Jesus in trouble. But Jesus answers the question with great authority and in an undisputable way, taking them back to the very beginning. That's question number one. Is it lawful to divorce? The second question, if you want to look with me at verse 17, uh, we discover in the text that there's a, a young man, a wealthy young man, who comes to Jesus and bows down before him, and he asks arguably a much better question. The question he asks is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Better question than the divorce question. We notice as we read the text that as this man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't answer him the way he answers Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who comes to Jesus at night. He has the same burning question on his mind. Jesus cuts right to the chase and says, well, you must be born again. To which Nicodemus says, well, that's impossible. Jesus doesn't respond to this young man the same way he responds to Nicodemus. He responds to this young man the same way the religious leaders of his day would respond. If this young man would have went to the religious leaders of his day and he said, hey, what must I do and inherit eternal life? They would say, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And so he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And then he rattles off a half a dozen of them, all of them relational commandments. He says, well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. To which the young man does a quick appraisal of his life and he says, I've kept all these commands. <laughs> I've kept all these commands since I was a little boy. I'm good. Think about this. Here's a man who in the eyes of current society, both then and today would be a certain candidate for heaven. He's a shoe-in for sure. He's rich, which everyone interprets, well, that means God must be blessing him. He's rich. He's gained his wealth with integrity. He hasn't been fraudulent. He hasn't oppressed people. He hasn't been dishonest. He's got his wealth with integrity. He knows the law. He knows the law well, and he's kept the law blamelessly. He's spiritually inclined. He has a real interest in God. He has a real interest in eternal life. He even believes in the resurrection. And he, in humility, comes to Jesus for a certain answer. This guy is sure to make it through the gates of glory. He's a good guy in every category. And Jesus, it says, he looks at him and loves him. Well, of course he loves him. And Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Oh, you think this guy would be leaning in, right? Oh, one thing. I lack one thing. What's that one thing? What's the one thing? Jesus looks at him and loves him, and he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The man's face falls. I think that's the most literal interpretation of the text. The man's face falls. Disheartened, he leaves Jesus greatly disappointed. Why? He is unable to inherit eternal life on his own terms. This man must have thought he was going to get an answer from Jesus that would allow him to continue his life unchanged. Maybe he was simply looking for affirmation from Jesus. Like, ah, you keep the commandments, you're in. Clearly, he wasn't expecting the answer that Jesus gave because he walks away, disappointed. 
And the, di- the, the disciples are there with their jaws hitting the floor. <laughs> yeah, for sure, if anyone's gonna get saved, this is the guy. In the preceding paragraph, which we skipped over, verses 13 through 16, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This man is unable to fully depend upon God like a little child does with his or her parents. His problem isn't a money problem. His problem is a faith problem. And on his own, in his own ability, he is unable to produce the faith that would save him. Apart from God's enabling grace, he is unable to transfer his faith from the life that he has secured for himself with his possessions and transfer that to God and to the life that God has secured for him through Jesus Christ. He can't do it. He walks away disappointed. He can't do this on his own. He will need God's help. He should be praying the same prayer that the man prayed last week, God help my unbelief. You see, it's not his possessions that will keep him out of heaven. It's his lack of childlike faith. The disciples are stunned. They're stunned that this spiritually-minded, law-keeping, wealthy good guy is not going to be saved. They can't believe it. And they're like, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus makes it clear to them that it's not only difficult, he says that three times over, but it's not only difficult, it is impossible to obtain salvation and achieve entry into the kingdom of God through human effort. No one is able to inherit eternal salvation through their own efforts. It's not possible. But God does the impossible. Praise God he does the impossible. God saves people. God saves people by his grace, by his grace that results in dependent faith in his provision, namely in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have the illustration in the text. The disciples left everything and followed Jesus. They experienced God doing the impossible in their life. They experienced God's grace. They placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they received from Jesus a new home, a new family, new problems, persecutions for identifying with Jesus and a new life, a new life that doesn't end. Unlike the rich man who walked away, they inherited eternal life, not through their own efforts, but by God's grace through depending on Jesus like little children. Now, those are, the, those are the two questions that Jesus has asked. Is it lawful to divorce? Jesus answers. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers. We move forward in the text. You still with me? Still with me? Jesus is going to ask one question two times over. And uh, we see in verse 35, if you move ahead in your text, we see that James and John come to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's quite bold, isn't it? Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We've heard you say everything is possible for the one who believes. And here we come in faith believing, and we want you to do for us whatever we want. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, we we want to sit, one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Wow, that's huge. 
That's a big request. Uh, they understand and they've come to believe that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. They know that there's glory ahead for him and they just wanna be near Jesus in his kingdom. That's a big faith-based request right there. How many of you wanna be near Jesus in his kingdom? Oh, that's good. None of you are like, no, Jesus can be in Jerusalem. We'll be in the Sahara Desert. We'll be fine. No, we'll be in Arizona. No, no, we want to be near Jesus in his kingdom. And, and here John and James are saying, hey, we want, we want the right hand and the left hand side. We want to be right near you. What's the problem with their request? It's not selfish ambition. Jesus does not deride them for their selfish ambition. He does not deride them for their desires to be at his right and left hand. Jesus said the problem with their request is ignorance. They don't know what they're asking. Uh, we, we read in the preceding paragraph, as Jesus is telling about his death and resurrection for the third time over, uh, they, they, don't, they don't understand that before the glory comes rejection and suffering and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. They don't understand that at Jesus' greatest moment of obedience and victory, there will be someone on his right and on his left. Two crucified terrorists will be on his right and on his left. Uh, they don't understand. James doesn't know that he will be martyred for identifying with Jesus in just a few years. John doesn't know that he'll die as an old man in a prison colony exiled on the island of Patmos for identifying with Jesus. They don't know this. James and John express their desire to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. They don't know what they're asking. And Jesus replies to their request, and he says it's not his divine autonomous prerogative to determine who sits on his right or left hand in his kingdom. Those are positions for whom it has been prepared. Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world to through the cross, death, and resurrection to provide for our pardon. And the places next to him in his kingdom are places for whom it has been prepared. Here's the point. The disciples' ignorant request is not going to change the divine counsel of the Godhead. Their request is not going to change God's, God's ultimate plan. Oh, that's good news. That's comforting news. How many of us have made ignorant requests? Today. <laughs> we make tons of ignorant requests. We're little children. We don't know the future. We don't know all that God is up to. There's no way we can understand. We make ignorant requests all the time. God do this for me. God do that for them. God do this, God do that. We make requests all over the place and, and they're ignorant requests and we ought to make them. But this ignorant request is not gonna change God's divine counsel nor his divine plan. It's not gonna alter his agenda. That's really good news. Jesus prayed, Heavenly Father, have this cup pass for me. Boy, if God answered that prayer, that would change salvation's agenda from the before the foundation of the world. That'd be horrible. Not my will, but your will be done. How many of us want God's will determined by our limited earthbound perspective? No way. 
No way. Jesus doesn't deride them for the request they make, but he does use the conversation to once again remind them that service, not self-advancement, is the path to greatness in God's kingdom. In the final paragraph of Mark chapter 10, uh, we find Jesus asking the same question that he asked James and John to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? We read that Jesus is leaving Jericho. A crowd of people are around him. Um, Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. He's on the road. He's, he's begging. He hears it's Jesus that's passing by. He begins to call out for mercy. He says, Jesus, son of David, which is a great messianic title. He understands who Jesus is. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd tries to silence him, but he cries all the more. Jesus hears him. Jesus calls Bartimaeus to come to him. And, uh, and, and when he gets to him, Jesus asks, hey, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, well, let me recover my sight. That sounds like selfish ambition. Not praying for others. He's praying for himself. I want to receive my sight. Sounds like selfish ambition. Jesus responds and says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And Bartimaeus receives his sight and becomes a follower of Jesus. I find it fascinating that he's named because quite often Jesus performs miracles and the person isn't named. Bartimaeus is named. I think he became a follower of Jesus and was in the early church. When Mark is writing this, he's like, it's Bartimaeus I'm talking about, son of Timaeus. Go talk to him about it. Bartimaeus receives his sight, becomes a follower of Jesus. I read this text and I'm like, this is, this is rather fascinating. James and John, they make a good request. We want to sit at your right hand and left hand in your, in your glory. Their request is denied. They don't know what they're asking, and God's will is not going to be changed by their agenda. Bartimaeus has a request. I, I'm going to receive my sight. <laughs> and he gets his sight restored. Fascinating. How frequently God surprises us. In both cases, with James and John and with Bartimaeus, God's perfect will would be accomplished. You know, prayer isn't for us to get God to do what we want him to do. Prayer is an opportunity for us to commune with God and learn his will through the answers he gives to prayer and lean on him like little children, lean on parents for everything and grow in faith, and grow in dependence, and grow in knowledge, and grow in maturity. You know, like little children, you and I, we are, we're going to pray today. And we're going to ask God questions. Well, you got questions. And we're going to make requests of God. What questions do you have for Jesus? Are you free to ask Him? Do you have the liberty, the courage, the boldness, to go to God through Jesus Christ and, 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 and ask him your questions? Lay on him what you have on your heart and mind like a little child? If Jesus were to say to you, what do you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? You have some requests that you might make? Are you free to make those requests with thankfulness? Knowing that God is wise and able 
You can lay those requests on him, knowing he's going to do what is right and good and best. Can you trust him with his reply and the answer that he gives? And can you rest in the knowledge of his wisdom and power and receive from his hand what he graciously supplies? You know, in Romans chapter 8, there's a promise that we all know very well. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. In that same passage, it says that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us when Jesus returns and his children are revealed. I began the sermon with 1 Peter chapter 1. We've not seen Jesus, but we love him. We don't see him now, but we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible for we're obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. The context of that is God's mercy, which has secured our internal inheritance. God is guarding us and protecting us with his power. He is allowing, presiding over various griefs that test our faith. And according to the text, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. God also sovereignly directs the experiences of our lives for our ultimate good because the tested genuineness of our faith is better than gold. The, the, the tested genuineness of our faith is, is, is better than gold. Those who trust in him like little children receive the kingdom. The kingdom. What's bigger than that? What's better than that? What's greater than that? Those who trust in Jesus like little children receive the kingdom. So like little children, we're going to pray. We have questions and we have requests. We ask a lot of them, the majority of them in ignorance, but I'm going to encourage you, make your requests known and do so with thankfulness, knowing that you have a heavenly father that is wise and able and is working for your good. And like little children, receive from his hand what he graciously gives. Now, let me close in prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in our lives as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your sovereign watch care over our lives. We are eternally grateful that you have provided for our salvation something that we could not secure on our own, something that would be impossible for us to do. You have done it through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you receive all those who come to you like little children, depending completely on you. You reveal yourself faithful to yourself, to your promises, to your word, and to your people. And you receive unto yourself those who come to you through Christ. You transfer us into the kingdom of your Son. Immeasurable glory. And Father, we recognize that today you lead us through a variety of experiences and we make a variety of requests. And you're working all things together for our good. Help us to lean on you. Help us to learn of you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to, to know your will through the answers that you give to our prayers. 
Grow us in knowledge and faith and grace and obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.